Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Phil Copsey is an author who recently published his first novel, Blue Justice. This is more than just another well-researched or well-imagined crime novel because Phil has actually lived the experience over several decades as a police officer in Melbourne. Welcome to Publish or Not, Phil Copsey. You and thanks for getting me in today. It's uh, great to meet you. Well, I'd like to start with your background, Phil. While I was reading your book, even though it is fiction, I couldn't help wonder how many times in real life you would have been thankful just to arrive back home from work to your family alive. How long were you with the Victoria Police and how often did you have days you thank your lucky stars for making it home? Uh, year on, I was with uh, VicPol for just over 40 years and uh, there was many a day when I thanked my lucky stars for coming home. What uh, it could have been between crime that happened on the streets or bushfires that happened up the, up the country. Many times I, uh, I uh, was very grateful to get back home. So this book rings with authenticity. How much of you is in Tony Signorotto? Tell us about Tony. Well, Tony's a very complex character. He's actually a combination of, oh, I'd say probably about six, five or six members that I've worked with over the years in the uh, inner suburbs of Carlton, Fitzroy, Collingwood, Richmond. Uh, so he's a composite character, good. He is very much a composite character, and um, you could have uh, days working with the Tony Signorottos that were very, very dull, but they could turn very exciting very quickly, or very deadly very quickly. <laughs> Okay, can we talk about the opening? When you're introducing your main character, Tony Signorotto, there's an incident in Ligon Street. So this book is set in, mainly set in Carlton. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the rough justice that uh, Tony administered, just by way of introduction to readers? Well, he's a little incident uh, in the restaurant in Ligon Street. Um, you could look on as a uh, as something that may never happen or may <laughs> might not happen at all. But in actual fact, uh, the incident in the first chapter did happen and uh, it wouldn't happen in today's society, I suppose, but um, not everyone in those days had um, iPhones. Okay. But when you say in those days, uh, the, the setting to me, it could almost be set at any time, but when in your imagination is it set? Uh, look, to be honest, it was set more late 70s, yeah. uh, early 80s, probably more late 70s, uh, as, uh, as I said in the book, when uh, when uh, two-litre cars weren't really around then, you know, they, all, they all drove V8s, and uh, yeah. in those days, as I said, the only thing that uh, came in two litres was milk and juice. <laughs> Just way too small for the 70s. Yes, yeah. way too small. <laughs> but he has got that universal appeal because he's damaged, isn't he? He's damaged goods. He uh, reminds me of quite a few characters I knew at different stations, inner suburban stations, who... On the outside were uh, very good knockabout blokes, very good police officers, but also um, had a lot of problems to hide too. And uh, unfortunately in those days too, that what happened, it's a lot different now. I think um, other people who worked around those sort of characters uh, 
through kindness, really, but I don't suppose it was kindness. They tried to hide their problems uh, as well as uh, shifting people around from place to place, but really they weren't doing the characters much good at all. Yeah, it wasn't a blokey thing to be talking about your pl- problems. On Not the at all. It wasn't afterwards. a blokey thing yeah. at all. The, the blokey thing to do was to uh, share a beer uh, uh, over a local bar, but uh, yeah. some days that was probably the last thing you should be yeah. doing with some of these characters. Yeah. It got too emotional. Cut that out. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, by the end of the night, you've wanted to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Okay, so now he, he is damaged, and you've explained he's a composite, so it's not any particular police officer. But there is a particular incident in the novel that has damaged Tony. So without giving any spoilers away, uh, and very early on you do explain this in the novel, what particular incident has really damaged Tony? Well, the incident that damaged him, and uh, it is actually a, uh, an incident that uh, I know quite a lot about, uh, based on a car crash where, uh, which was also really of a, of a, of a car chase, a police chase, and, um, the person was trapped in the car. Ooh. And, uh, the person was trapped in the car at the end with the police officer looking on as the person actually died in the car. Uh, the person was trapped. Was Someone tried to save him, but it could not be saved. Was the car in flames? Yes, when the car was on fire. Yes. And what had actually caused the car to burst into flames? Was it? Well, in those days, the, the young people around tried anything to, uh, to hotten up their cars and, uh, you know, even, oh, I suppose some older people did too, but, uh, uh, nitrous oxide. You Ooh. shouldn't use it in the car. <laughs> they don't do it anymore. Um, it gave it the old turbo boost. You used to see it, uh, what was it? The, the show on TV, it was a Black Knight, whatever it was called. With oh, the, the, not the Knight Rider. The Knight Rider, oh, yeah. 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 Michael Hasselhoff. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just go to Nitro now. Well, uh, <laughs> that doesn't always work if your connections aren't put together properly. Well, I, I've got to ask, is nitrous oxide still a thing that happens? Not on the street. Not on the no, street. They, no, they, they used it in drag racing and things like that. Yeah, but uh, yeah. no, it's not something that anyone would tamper with on the streets anymore now. Mm. Not at all. So police chase back then, if something like a bottle of nitrous oxide exploded, that really, it would be an inferno almost oh, instantly. Without doubt, yeah. yes. Um, it was uh, justifiable. But Tony Signorotto, in the book, he blames himself for not being able to get there and not being able to rescue the uh, young man who's, who's trapped alive. Well, he blames himself really too because that's true, but also because of, well, why did he chase him? Yeah. It was because he knew him from a previous history, but in the end of it, was it worth it? Yeah. And as a result of being tortured by those what-ifs, what-ifs, uh, he looks like he's got a bit of a drinking problem, has he? Well, it wouldn't have been the Lone Ranger in those days uh, in the interceptions in, the <laughs> in Melbourne. Um, yes, he did have a drink, but this only, this only made it worse, and uh, he couldn't get it out of his mind at all. And in the, with a particular person, or well, one of the particular people I'm talking about in those characters, yes, he could not get it out of his mind at all, and it just became worse and worse. And... Yeah, in those days too, you, in those days you were welcome at uh, drinking holes around the, the, the inner suburbs. And um, to be honest, you know, a bit like McDonald's, you never had to pay for a price. <laughs> Got that on the record. All right, uh, part of trying to salvage himself, you've done a wonderful job of uh, a more emotional journey to, if, if listeners are thinking, oh, it's all action and bullets and uh, hard-bitten cops, it was a really good emotional core to the story, and that's with... Tony's love interest. Could you tell us a bit about how she helps him come to grips with his past? 
Well, Susie is his anchor. He, she has been around for quite a while. She's one of these great girls who, um, look, it not only applies to a lot of people in life, but it applies to a lot of people in the police force of those days too. Members who uh, just took it for granted that the girl would always hang around while yeah. they went out and played cops and robbers. Yeah. Well, this girl did. She she was his anchor, and she just never gave up on him at all. And along with one of the other people in the in, in the novel, uh, Phil Stone, um, just got him back on track again. Mm-hmm. Eventually, would never give up on him, and got him back on track again. But both with Susie, his uh, romantic interest, and Phil Stone, his boss. They aren't just rah-rah supporters. They really confront him in various chapters about his behaviour and where he's going with it. Oh, without doubt. They, uh, she slaps him around a bit. And Phil, uh, although being he's a superior uh, officer, he uh, he's also a lifelong friend. And he doesn't uh, come on to him with the you will do's and you won't do's. He uh, takes him aside and treats him as he is. He, he's a great friend. Although they're of different rank, they've worked together for a long time and been through an awful lot together. So uh, that happened and still happens a lot in the police force too. You go through a lot of things together and no matter what rank it might be, you'll still sit down at the end of the day and have a beer and rank's forgotten completely. But uh, and that's when the war stories come out. Yeah, well, Phil Stone comes across as a really credible, believable and likeable character. But the other big thing we need to talk about about Tony Signorotto is that he has a bit of a compromise. Saying a bit is an understatement. He is Italian and Little Italy has some mafia characters. In, in what way has he compromised through family connections? Well, he's compromised through his, uh, mainly through his uncle, uh, who's the, uh, the head of the uh, local uh, mafiosa connection around Carlton, uh, who has been so for quite a while. But then also what I think uh, he's, Tony's let him slide for quite a while, but then what brings it to the head is uh, his young cousin, Sav, who, a uni who, student? Yes, he's a uni student and um, doing medicine. But, but all, yeah, doing all sorts of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> um, he uh, gets involved one night, and I think Tony realises he's turned a blind eye for a long time. But uh, is it time to do the lawful thing or do the family thing? And it does become a compromise. But in the end, uh, he's got to go the whole hog. Yeah, well, that's good where he's got divided loyalties. And as a, a reader, you're thinking, OK, which way is he going to play this now? Because with his own problems, he does have to take a few backward steps to, to go forward again, and the, juggling the family is not easy. The, the design of the novel is really well put together, particularly for a first novel. You've got this emotional core to the story. You've got a, a great action story as well. But the way you cut in and out of the characters using multiple third-person points of view, so... For a while we're in uh, this character's shoes and a while in another character's shoes. How difficult did you find that to do? Uh, to be honest, from my experience over 40 years, it's, uh, it wasn't all that hard really because when you, when you work in a job like the, the police force, it is a complex job and it takes complex characters to work in it. And you'd be amazed what you find out from a couple of days of working with People from different backgrounds, whatever, how, how diverse the whole police force is. Hmm. People say sometimes that maybe it's uh, all very one-directional law and order, but there's a lot more to the average police officer than just the blue uniform standing on the street. Very true. And I've got to tell you, there's something I found out. This is just an example of the authenticity. I, mean, I love things when you say, oh, that cop couldn't catch a Collins Street tram and 
Phil Stone's desk was the mahogany foxhole. But there was a bit... Uh, I'm just going to quote this from later in the book, and I'm uh, not going to give any spoilers here, but there was something I'd never understood about pistols. Jill knew the Carlton police station like the back of her hand. Now, this is the female desk officer, and could tell the shuffling sounds that Middleini one of the bad guys, was trying to get out. She immediately racked the slide on the pistol, automatically ejecting around and in doing so clearing any possible chance of jamming that could happen with her next shot. And I went, oh, is that why? <laughs> but I was like, well, and I really liked that authenticity. You know, she didn't just pull out a gun. So look, congratulations on the book. Are you thinking of turning Tony Signorotto into a series? Yes, Tony Signorotto is uh, into book number two at the moment, and the title being The Calibre of Justice. The Calibre of Justice, to go with Blue Justice. To go with Blue Justice. He, uh, a little bit of a different tack this time. Some, same characters. Some are gone, obviously, because they've, uh, they've disappeared from life in the, in Blue Justice. But, uh, yes, well into, well into the second one. The Tony Signorotto series. Good. So I've been talking with Phil Copsey about his book, Blue Justice, which you can buy online at the moment. And thank you very much for coming and joining us on Published or Not Today, Phil Copsey. You and it's been an absolute pleasure and it's great to see you again. Thank you very much. Well, from the world of policing to other worlds, now sometimes I think I'm on another planet. And having read a few titles from George Ivanoff's Other Worlds series, visiting such worlds seem possible and plausible. So, George, welcome back to 3CR. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Now, your previous series was actually a You Choose uh, collection, allowing the younger reader to explore different scenarios and outcomes. I mean, what was the reception like for, for the YouTube series? Oh, the YouTube series have, uh, has done really, really well for me. Um, it's, uh, it got to 13 books in the series. So, um, yeah. <laughs> well, how, how many, uh, how many are you up to with the Other Worlds series? Um, the Other Worlds series is four books currently. Four, currently, yeah. but there are more on the way? Um, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. We <laughs> need to wait to see whether they're popular enough for more or not. Well, it's the, you know, publishing is a business. You've got to entice them on. Things. But in terms of possibilities, other worlds seem mm. totally plausible and possible here. Now, the, the ones I read in the series are Beast World, uh, where all sorts of animals fill human roles, and Perfect World, where the society was made up of uh, perfect copies. But I want to sort of bring the YouTubes and the uh, other worlds together in many ways, because mm. you're tapping into the mindset of the younger reader in some ways well that's the idea yes yeah. I mean, how do you do that oh i just haven't grown up it's, it's it really it really is just as simple as that um, but I, there's there's something about what mm. you're doing there with uh, allowing the reader to engage in in, in the youtubes and putting forward potential possibilities with uh, beast world perfect world that engages kids of that age. Well, actually, we better identify the age we're talking about. Who? Um, they are officially advertised as 8 plus. So um, in, in my mind, I guess I'm aiming 8 to 12. I, How do you get there? How do you get in your adult mind to the 8 to 12 year old? I'm, I, I really don't have that much of a problem thinking back to the sort of stuff that I liked at that age. Probably because I still 
like a lot of that same stuff. I still play computer games. I still watch Doctor Who. I, what is it know. about those worlds then? Yeah, you know, you're coming up with different worlds mm. for these scenarios. As I said, perfect world and beast world. Um, how do you come up with those? Um, basically, well, there, there, there's a couple of different ways. I mean, first of all, there's the approach of of what I would have liked to have read as a kid. And, oh, I'd love a cool world with this or a yeah. cool world with that. And there's also the grown-up me behind their thinking, uh, well, what sort of a world could I use that will be interesting for me to write as a grown-up as well as be interesting to read? For a kid, so each one of the books has got that kind of dual level. It's I'm I'm hopefully hitting something that's going to be interesting to kids of that age, but it also has to be interesting to me as a writer to be able to. It, it seems to, to me it. that a child's imagination can actually conceive of uh, unreality in some ways, which is bound by you know the their existence so to speak but then you know what if an animal could talk and uh, and such like and it fascinates them but as you say something for the adult as well because what i enjoyed about beast world were all the historical references i mean we've got um the the uh, zandra and lex uh, in a library at one stage in this beast world, and you've got the history of the rise and ascendance of the United Animal Kingdom of Britannia by Edward Gibbon, on the origin of the animal species by Charles Darwin, the Londinium Almanac and the Londinium Maps, and these are the books in the library. But okay, Edward Gibbon, uh, the um, the uh, what was the the fall, the, rise, uh, the, the, the decline and fall of the Roman yeah. Empire. So you've actually touched on. Yeah. Uh, adult references. Then. Oh yeah, yeah. I I do <laughs> I do that um, a to keep myself amused because I, I like doing those little references, mm. and also I'm very much aware of the fact that with this age group, parents are often reading the books to their children. So I am trying to give the the, the parents a little something in there as well to keep them yeah. uh, focused. I mean, Londinium, the Roman name for London. Basically. Well, I I liked the idea because I used. Um, uh, Victorian London as the template for um, for the for the Beast World, um, but I didn't want to make it exactly the same. So you know, doing a little bit more reading and, and research, I thought, oh, what about the old Latin names? And so that's what I use. So it's Londinium instead of London River, Tamisis instead of Thames, and, and, yeah. and so forth. And um, you've also got. You've placed the animals rather well, I think, in, in Beast World. For example, um, you've got a, a bison as the, um, what are they, the, the guard? The, 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 the Queen's guard. The yeah, Queen's the, guard with, yeah. with those huge... The, be- yeah, the beef eaters. The, yeah, yeah. the beef eaters, they're the guards in the funny outfits on oh, the right, Tower yeah, of London. Yeah, yeah. But, um, well, they're just the military in mm. the red jackets and those long, tall... Hats for some reason generally made out of bearskin, but oh, okay. the the uh, sort of character and the animal fit quite nicely in that regard. Well, yeah, I, I have tried for that. I did. I did um, uh, when doing the research for that book. I did uh, look up a lot of um, information on various different animals and like looking at the characteristics of the animals and so forth, and then you know mm. trying to decide well which ones shall I you, use? You, Some were obvious, like you know the, the king, the, the yes. queen, and uh, and and stuff. The lions and, and such and, like. And, and, but you've also got other references in there. There's a there's a, a scientist or an inventor, Tesla. Tesla, yes. So you think okay. 
my thinking is that kids would start making connections or the word would be introduced to them and then they'd come across it later in other contexts. It's always my hope that they that they would. Um, I, I also realise that a lot of the references in there they're not going to get mm. um, and that's okay but They will you later. Know, yeah, hopefully yes yeah. and you know uh, Plants if, the seed, you know, so if it leads on to perhaps a discussion between parent and child, if the parent is reading the book to their kids, that's great too. And the child uh, responding to the reaction of a parent when mm. they see something. But he, there's also an adult concept in your book, and that's the structure. I don't know whether mm. that's deliberate, but the uh, Lexi and um, oh, Lex and Zandra escape because they're sort of imprisoned, but then escape and then that gets stifled and mm. they have to come uh, find a solution again. Was that deliberate? Oh, of course, yes. Um, you, you've got to have that, that. I mean, I, I view structure as a journey. You know, you find the journey for your characters and then you make that journey as difficult as possible by placing obstacles in their way. Yeah. They get over one obstacle and then get another one and so forth until you get to the really big obstacle right at the end. Yeah. Um, so th- that's a very sort of adult concept, but it drives the plot. A solution has to be found. Just to give uh, readers uh, an awareness of what's going on, the characters in the series are basically transported through a doorway into another world, uh, and then they actually have to resolve a problem in there for whoever is in that world before they can get back to their own world. Uh, So quite fascinating. But here's the other thing, the language for that age group, because the reading age is so diverse. But here we go. I've got an extract for you. The world lurched and spun and moved in ways that it should not. Xandra tingled all over, a sense of exhilaration coursing through her like a jolt of electricity. Then she hit the marble floor. Seconds later, her brother was there, sprawled out next to her, panting hard. That was awesome, she whispered. Are you kidding, grown Lex? That was awful. You came with me, said Xandra, of course. And then someone screamed long and high, a note that felt like it could burst eardrums. Choosing the language, like lurched, uh, exhilaration, coursing, I mean, it's going to be understood by uh, some readers, but not all. What's the balance that you go for here? This is where my editor comes in, because I do have a tendency to write to the upper end of the the age group and my editor is constantly pulling me back and saying look i think your language has gotten a little complex here can we pull it back a little bit um and stuff with the with the other world's books i i guess i was able to play a little bit more than say the you choose books which are a little bit more simplistic in terms of 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 their language um we figured i figured that this would be read by slightly Older, older kids is the next step, I guess, after. But in many ways, books. the reading age, if, if you're talking 8 to 12-year-olds, mm. the reading ages can go almost from 5 to 16. I know. I know. And it's, and it's you know, it's, it's interesting because it's always wider than I expect it to be. Yeah. Um, the You Choose books, uh, when I, you know, I had in my mind, I guess, about you know, 10-year-olds reading them, and that's what I'd always pitch them as. But, I've, you know, there are kids as young as seven reading them and younger kids who are having parents read them to them. And what completely astonished me was the fact that there were some high schools that bought class sets for their reluctant reader boys in years seven and eight. Yes. 
Uh, so it's a much wider a- age range than I ever expected when I was writing them. But I don't think you necessarily need to know the meaning of a word if you're reading it in context. Context is everything. Context is everything, yes. But it builds. That's the way to build vocabulary in some ways. You come across it. Just like we come across the uh, historical references, when words are used, it's put in front of you. You don't necessarily know the immediate meaning. You can see it within the context. Indeed. And then if you're coming across the word later, you start putting pieces of the puzzle together where meaning exists. So it's a a fascinating process, Um, and it's not a case of you have to understand, you've got to get this correct. It's building that knowledge that's the important thing Mm. and that awareness. I'm constantly appalled by the fact that, yeah, kids don't read and have that opportunity necessarily. I think I'm just getting old. We're back to that old Uh, trope uh, where I don't see the kids necessarily reading uh, as much uh, today. I mean, let's... I don't know. I mean, I I see a lot of kids reading. I mean, I do a lot of school visits and and, and stuff because of these books. And, you know, you, you hear the kids just don't read anymore and they're not reading as much. But I, going into schools, I still see that enthusiasm for, yeah. for reading. If you get a good teacher librarian too, they can sort of advocate for books and, and it yes. brings it alive. Yes. But I understand your two biggest critics are your two children. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, particularly what? my youngest. My youngest is nine. My eldest is 15. So what sort of criticism hmm. have they offered or advice Shall we say? All right. Well, um, with the other world's books, for for example, uh, my youngest Lexi really liked *A Perfect World*. Um, she liked the fast-paced ad- adventure of it, whereas she told me that *Beast World* was boring. That I spent too much time on the world and not enough time on chases and and stuff. Fairly direct. Yes. Go on. Whereas my uh, eldest, who's fifteen, said that. Uh, the the perfect world was a bit too superficial. There was not enough time spent building the world. Whereas Beast World, she really enjoyed because she enjoyed that 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 aspect of world building that was in there. But that gives you um, a sort of perspective on the the reading ages out there in in yeah. the community. Yeah, yeah. So it's it. But you'll never get it right. That's, that's well, and I and I'm not trying to get it right for everyone because you try to do that, you're going to go nuts. You can't. There, but, you know, reading one mm-hmm. leads to another, and then that comparison is valuable in itself. Yes, and and look, one of the my bits of thinking when when I was coming up with this series was, I wanted to do books in a series that were quite different from each other. Um, so the idea was to make them all stand alone. So the series is a series. It's linked by the fact that kids are finding these doorways. Um, but each one has a separate set of characters in a different world. So kids don't have to read the whole series. So, you know, with something like Beast World and Perfect World, they can go for the one that interests them. them. But, yeah, they will explore, and that's hmm. uh, part of it as well. One last quick question before yep. we uh, shift over to ruminations. In terms of inventing these worlds, how many more worlds have you got in you, George? Um, how many more worlds? I reckon, well, ideally I would love 
to go on to do 12 books in total for this series. That's, that's my ideal. The chances of actually getting to that are fairly minimal. Is, is your editor listening to this broadcast? Uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll point her to the link once the podcast is up. up. Well, we're going to actually have to finish there, George. Thank you very much. It's the Other Worlds series by George Ivanoff, and it's a Penguin release. So thank you very much, George. You're welcome.